Welcome to EdPod, connecting educational research and classroom teaching with Drs. Eric Claraval and Darren Battaglia. Episode 6, Accounting for English Learner Performance After No Child Left Behind. Hey, Eric. Hey, Darren. It's good to be back. <laughs> and today we are talking about English language learners and accountability. So the article that we are kind of basing our discussion upon is from Educational Researcher, and it's titled Fully Accounting for English Learner Performance, a Key Issue in ESEA Reauthorizations by Megan Hopkins. Tompkins, Linquanti, Hakuda, and August, and others, and it was published in 2013. It's good that you mentioned about the year it was published because I want I want to um, contextualize this discussion tonight um, because it's been six years or five years since this was published, and they used the data in two thousand in 2006 and 2007 for as part of their analysis, and then from there. They create, you know, they, they created these recommendations, and um, and so I thought um, it's interesting for us to to look back then and and what's happening right now. Um, now that no child left behind is gone, and what is the current state of English language learners in California and in Oregon? I have to admit, I haven't followed closely. Uh, the reauthorization of the elementary and secondary, what's it called? Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which was No Child Left Behind, and now it's the, uh, it's called ESSA, Every Student Succeeds Act. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same way that NCLB does. Right. That was actually, ESSA was the reauthorization, and this was written a few years before, like you know, a few years before the reauthorization of the uh, ESEA, um, and there's a list of recommendations that they have. And the people who write this are some pretty big names in um, EL in both assessment and EL literacy. Um, there's some people who I, uh, there are a couple of people I'm not familiar with, but a few people I'm very familiar That's with right. in some of their work. Kenji Hakuda and Diane August. These and are also, the, the big names in English language learners and psycholinguistics. Yeah. Robert Lanquanti does a lot of work with districts through WestEd. Mm-hmm. up and down California um, as well in, in assessment and accountability. So those are the names that I'm familiar with. It's interesting, though, to see that these are some experts there uh-huh. who have put together some recommendations for a policy when you know, expert feedback was necessary. And then now we are, here we are five years later, and there is a new law in effect mm-hmm. and what's happened since then. So why don't we start off by talking about what their recommendations are. Sure. Good thing about NCLB, No Child Left Behind, was that for the first time, and I think a lot of teachers really liked this, I liked this, was that there was all of a sudden focus in some of those subgroups who typically typically got ignored just because they weren't seen as important, they didn't have enough uh, status in our society to really get mm-hmm. you know resources placed toward their education. And all of a sudden, when you look at breakdowns on how all students are doing and you see that, English learners or students of color or students who live in poverty aren't doing well, then you know that those needs can be addressed. And so that was something that was really good about NCLB. It actually 
divided students, not just it divided students by subgroups, not just by race and ethnicity, but also by um, language and, and uh, social cl- uh, social needs as well. And as disabilities well, as well. Yeah, and disabilities. So one of the things, though, about English learners specifically, and they mentioned this in the article, is this sort of revolving door of who the English learners, who English learners are. You come into school as an English learner because you fill in a home language survey that states that there is a language other than English spoken at home. You're assessed, and if the result of that assessment is that you are not yet proficient in English, you are given a, generally speaking, you're giving some sort of support to become proficient in, in English. So that, that's, that's one practice that, I, that I, I find it questionable because they base the student's um, possibility of an English learner when, when it's stated in the form that, that parents speak Spanish or other than English. And then that automatically translated to the school district that, okay, the child should be given an ESL, uh, an, uh, an assessment. Well, the child's classified as English language learner if they don't have the same uh, academic skills in English as a similar student, you know, of their same age. So, a student who maybe comes from a home where both English and Spanish is spoken, or, or, um, or, or a, a you know, a monolingual home that's not English, um, you know, maybe has learned some English, or maybe has learned some social English, perhaps from older brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean they have mastered the academic English necessary to be uh, conversant in the uh, discourse we need at school. Therefore, schools, it is the school responsibility to give them the support to teach in that language so that they can be successful. Hence, that home language survey is those, it's really three questions, I think it is, although some school districts might ask more, that um, that begin that process. There has to be some way to for, for us as a school district to know Who is it we're supposed to assess? Who is it we're supposed to give this extra support to? We have to ask the parent what languages are spoken at home. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, I I do have a a colleague who uh, did her uh, doctoral thesis on assessing students uh, from monolingual English homes with our ELD assessments. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and what she found that there were a large number of I'm not sure if the word is false positives. I don't know if it's false positives or false negatives um, if there is the right word. But there would be a large number of students who are monolingual English who would be classified as English learners if they were forced to take the same assessments. And in fact, she, you know, she was able to, to find that students whose parents filled out the home language survey incorrectly uh-huh, uh-huh. or who were just assessed with the uh, English language assessment would in fact be classified as English learners. And that kind of leads to a whole... A uh, new discussion about um, the inferences we make around these assessments uh-huh. gets off in a whole new pathway. But that's interesting that you mentioned about that because the, the the whole assessment itself is is problematic, and that leads to you know this whole new issue of long term English language learners right. that that they're classified throughout their career in education from K to twelve. Even though, you know, they, they com- can completely converse in English and without even an, an accent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the things that I question about is, is, is the validity of reading and writing assessment within the, that 
English language paradigm. Right, and this goes back to that <clears throat> to to the some of these recommendations. So we have we have essentially we have within the L subgroup. So we look at you know we look at this goal. And we have okay, we have all these English learners, but there's different types of English learners. It's very easy to say, yeah, we, there are, these students are English learners, but within that we have students who have just arrived to the country and might only be classified as English learner for a couple of years. They have a very strong academic background in their first language. They uh, get some appropriate and very strong supports in first and the new language. And they move through and they become proficient and they move on and they become reclassified students um, and uh, are no longer English learners, no longer need the, need the support. So those ones are moved out of that English learner bucket into a reclassified bucket and then therefore are not part of that English learner bucket anymore. And they might do very well academically, but then, and that also kind of brings down, if we look at a school standpoint, they're no longer um, helping out the school's EL subgroup scores, you know, because they're not in that group anymore. So we've kind of skimmed those ones off the top, those scores off the top, because they tend to do better. And what we have now left in the EL subgroup are still those students who are still new to the country. Maybe we have the longer term English learners, like you say, students who have been here, perhaps were born here. Mm -hmm. uh, and Mostly have, are born here. Yeah, mostly are born mm -hmm. here. They might be second or third generation students and have never attained the academic skills necessary to uh, you know, move through the reclassification process that we've set forth by the school or by the district, are not doing well academically in school, are not passing our, you know, our smarter balance assessment or whatever it is that we have, our state, our state assessment, and therefore cannot reach uh, the reclassification uh, status. We might also have students with an interrupted formal education so that they come, uh, perhaps, these are especially students I find from parts of Africa and parts of uh, Central America, where they, rural parts, where they did not go to school at all or did not go regularly. And then they come here and, you know, they're 13 and maybe they've only been to school a year or two, but because they're 13, we put them in eighth grade. Um, and they struggle a lot because they know very little. They have very little, little background knowledge in their own language. They have very different needs than the 13-year-old who's been here his or her entire life and already speaks the language. So, but they're all English learners anyways. They're all sitting in our schools. They're all English learners. Right. They all have different needs. And then there's also the English learners who, who like you mentioned, who are, all, who are dual identified, who are English learners, and they're also special ed students with varying needs um, as special ed students. So, I, so what is the policy about those students who are in special education and, and still being classified as English language learners, you know that, you know, that the cognitive part of, 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 of this issue uh, affects the way they perform in the test. So it's, it's clearly that it's clearly that that it is the cognitive part that interferes with with, with the process of, of of achieving proficiency in English. I so don't what, think what, what is yeah. the policy about that? I don't think there's a single policy. I've never worked at a place, and I've worked in several school districts in a couple mm -hmm. of states. I've never worked in one place where they said, we have this policy, and here's how we're going to do it, or this is a very clean, easy way to do it. Um, you know, in, in discussions I've had with people at, at TESOL, the National Organization for you know, Teachers of English, I, don't, mm -hmm. I think there's, there's a lot of discussion, too, that I've seen over, over the years. Um, it's, it's so thorny because in each individual student, you have to ask the question, 
is the reason this student is not displaying you know, the proper um, skills in the language a result of their status as an English learner or a result or a consequence of their disability. And you need that, you need the expert as a special uh, education instructor, you need the uh, expert in English language development, and you need to be able to come together and make some sort of determination, you know, because like you say, if you're taking, if you're taking, if they're taking the uh, English language development test, and they're still scoring after several years, they're still scoring at that, you know, early intermediate level, but they seem to be conversing socially quite well, then perhaps it's a special education problem with their some sort of cognitive abilities then. But it's, it's, I think that would probably be more like your IEP team decision. But I, 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 there is not one policy. And especially, if we get down the line further of this, I think especially with new, the new legislation that's passed under ESSA. I know that, that in the e- ELL classes, that they, they, they provide interventions as far as academic vocabulary for, for these students. But don't you think that, but these academic vocabularies are also the same vocabulary that monolinguals need to learn. Right, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, so why can't they just, you know, these students with English language um, learning background, why can't they just be educated in the mainstream class to learn those academic vocabularies as opposed to pulling them out from their peers and, and put them in, in one classroom together so you're asking about the proper setting mm-hmm. for educating an english language learner mm-hmm. that's and a discussion I, that, yeah i know that's a discussion about models uh-huh. right and so it's it's beyond it this is beyond the article now but but i thought it's you know it, it is um it, it's a direct implication of what what this article talks about in, in all the it comes down to all you know Schools, teachers, we are responsible for teaching students content and a school system is responsible for also teaching students language, not just content. We have to be able to teach students how to speak English as well as all of the content there. And that goes back to, you know, to, to, to talk about what we all learned in, in teacher school. That goes back to the Lao decision in 1974. You know, it's not just about coming to school and we're going to teach you to do math. We have right. to teach you English and how to do math. The type of model that schools have to do that, whether it's bilingual model or dual immersion or we're pulling kids out or we're, you know, we have uh, some aids to help out in the class or kids are in all day long and they get some sort of um, uh, structured English immersion. That depends upon uh, that's a school district way of doing things. It has to do with the number of kids in a school who are English learners in a classroom as well. So it's it's not just, I, th- I think in the very end, it's not just a uh, instructional decision. It also comes down to money that school districts have, money that they receive both from the state and from like, Title III dollars that they can afford to, um, how, how they decide to spend their money on extra teachers or an extra paraprofessionals as well that they can best form a program right it's uh you know it's they're they're very political decisions that teachers should get involved with and also community members can get involved with because they can help make those decisions about the uh, structure of the educational program that's in law too and and then you know what you just mentioned goes 
straight to the point of this article that that we need to set high expectations for these students and educators are responsible that that they provide quality instructional materials and and pedagogy for these students to achieve proficiency level. And speaking of that, one of the things that the article does mention is that in under No Child Left Be- Behind, the a lot of those expectations that were not realistic. We had expectations as a school and as districts that were not realistic upon. Yeah, that, like that's one hundred percent of attainment. So that's, right, and we can't expect one hundred percent of English learners mm-hmm. to achieve um, proficiency on the, you know, on the ELA test this year because some of them have only been here for a year. And there's a direct correlation between their proficiency in English and the proficiency on the content test. So um, these are these are demoralizing to teachers. It's demoralizing to students to have, hold these types of expectations. So as we move forward to make changes, we need to take these into consideration and make um, policy changes that will better support teachers and better support students to uh, that will you know inform the instruction and also um, support people rather than punish people if students don't if we don't have 100 uh, percent attainment of all the goals so the article mentioned about monitoring and addressing the needs of long-term ELs so where are we right now in terms of monitoring these students and they all go to high school and what what do school districts do? So I can only tell you really about what I know, my own personal point of view, because I'm not, this is not my, um, this, I don't work in this field really anymore. Mm-hmm. So what I do see from at my school, which is a middle school, we uh, students here in Oregon uh, are, after they are reclassified as a, from an English learner to a, a reclassified student, we do monitor their progress for two years, which is uh, based upon the federal guidelines that those students should be, we should continue to monitor their progress to ensure that they haven't been monitor, uh, reclassified prematurely and give them support for those two years as well. Monitoring means, in, in my case, that we have a staff member who is in charge, of, sort of like the case manager for all the English learners in our school. We have around, I don't know, 50 to 70 probably. And he will meet uh, with certain staff during the year and uh, say, okay, now let's talk about, um, you know, Johnny, how's he doing? It looks like he's getting a D in math. You know, what's the reason? Is it he's not working or is it that he's still having language difficulties? We kind of go case by case basis. There isn't a whole lot of talk necessarily about long-term L's where I am about those differences between the different needs of students or setting those apart from from the needs of perhaps newer students. I don't think those those discussions aren't going on in my school, but I also live in a state where there are not where there's only recent influxes of English learners. In California, my experience was very different. The discussions about around, around English learners were very different as well because English learners were one fifth of the state or or more. So when you were when you were here in California, what was the conversation? There was a lot of conversation about like long term f- English learners. Four years what, ago, what were we going to do? Yeah, what 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 are we doing about long term English learners because they're not they're not performing well. We know that they're a large percent of our of our school and of our school district, and that we need to tailor programs for them. And what we could see um, when I was working in the L- in the LA area 15 years ago, we had 
a uh, reading intervention program that was specific pretty much only for long-term English learners at the middle and high school level. And it was separate from the reading intervention program we had for students who were not English learners because we believed that that would be, you know, the, the language development piece of it would be more beneficial to those students and necessary, whereas the other students, it might be helpful, but it wasn't as necessary as it was for the English learners. So what is your opinion about a student with an IEP going to an English language development class and at the same time taking a language arts in special education? At a certain point, I mean, this is, we're stepping away again, but at a certain point when we, we start to have all these sort of add-on things and we start I mean, to... I mean, the reason why I, I, I ask this question is because it's part, uh, the big chunk of, of, of long-term English language learners are students in special education. Who are you know, who are English language learners? I don't. Well, I think there is a large chunk. I don't. I don't know. I I, I wouldn't know the percentages of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So here's here's something that happens in middle and high school when you have students who are English learners and you have students in special ed is that you know middle and high school students days as you know they're chunked into periods. six periods or eight periods and when you start saying okay you. English learner, you're going to take a period of ELD and you special ed student, we're going to give you a period of support. Then we start taking away elective chances and we start mm-hmm. giving them, right. um, or, you know, we start taking away opportunities for them and we start treating them differently. And, and, and then the rest of the student body, the rest of the student body, which has other, you know, which, which begins to have implications for their, you know, the overall enjoyment of school and overall achievement as well. Uh, we have to provide them the same uh, same opportunities as any other student. And if we say just, you know, kind of point blank to kids, you can't have any electives because you're an English learner. Uh, you've got to go to this ELD class instead of taking a uh, shop like your friends. And uh, you can't have any electives because, you know, you've got a special ed support class and an ELD class. Um, that, you know, those are... Tough decisions and probably not wise to to make. And it, it is it is a tough decision because I think the field of special education is just beginning to grapple with this idea of you know dual exceptionality quote unquote um, you know having having a, a learning disability and at the same time uh, your a child is developing their language proficiency in English. I, I've seen this in many classrooms um, in Cupertino that that they're you know that special education teachers are not fully prepared to address the needs of these specific population in their classroom. Yeah, it's hard though. I mean, it's even my classes aren't that big. I've got classes with only twenty four, twenty five kids, mm-hmm. and but then I've got several kids who have IEPs. I've got students who are from beginning um, English learners, and of course, students who are not English learners at all, students who are behavioral problems. Um, And I'm trying to just teach my math lesson, and I've got 50 minutes to get through it and make sure kids are doing, you know, some work together, and I can try to meet all kids in 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 the 50 minute period. And then to to do all that I have to do and then try to uh, attend to those individual needs of all students, you know, it, it's tough. It's it is. very tough every day. You know, it's it's so it would be so nice to say, 
they're, they're, okay, well, now we're going to have, have students go out and do, you know, English language development. So now you're not responsible for that. I can see the, I can, I can see how that would give me some relief. It's probably not a good decision instructionally, but I can feel like, okay, if I can just feel like I'm not responsible for something, you know, that, that is, that's good. But as a classroom teacher, I also need to be responsible for teaching all the content in my class. Right. To everybody. To everybody. Right. So where do you go? Where do we go from here? So it's been five years since this article was written. No Child Left Behind is gone. The ESSA is here with us. And what it's brought is each state has a lot more latitude to create its own policy, its own guidelines with English learners. We have some states like Florida, which are have been in the news for uh, largely forgetting English learners in their own state guidelines. Other states uh, have much more uh, innovative plans and innovative goals uh, with theirs. I think going forward, it's up to us as teachers to continue to do things instructionally that help our students and also to be those advocates outside to be knowledgeable about not just the state plan, but also our district plans for our English learners to make sure that they are making meaningful improvement you know, regardless of any plan that our district or school might mm-hmm. have. That's right. And Dr. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Vitalia. And it's always a pleasure talking to you and having this wonderful conversation about education and policies and teaching. Talk to you next time. All right. You can find links to articles we discussed on this episode and more in our show notes on edpod.tv. You'll also find information about us as well as how to contact the show. We're on Twitter at RealEdPod. Thanks for listening.